Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. All right, one more time. Every, every week. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So good to be with you this morning. I am tired from last night. I had too much fun. It was a little bit of a sensory overload being here uh, with everyone. Um, I just had a great, great time yesterday uh, dressing up as uh, Bruce Springsteen. And for me, that's not a very difficult thing for me to do. Uh, it was a joy for me. It was like a dream come true <laughs> to dress up like him. And that's how I, I pretty much dressed all the way to my high school years, my college years. That was my uniform. And so that was my costume last night. And uh, it was, uh, you know, we talk about fear of man in our sermon today. And it looks like the many, a lot, lot of you don't have fear of man from <laughs> the way you guys dressed last night. But uh, we'll see if that's the, that's the truth or not. Um, so Dan and Mina and their family dressed up as an In-N-Out crew. And so last night, Sir and I put all the kids down, and we started thinking, what do we think about? Man, we're hungry. <laughs> Let's go have some In-N-Out. That's some powerful advertisement. Uh, I think I was like getting hungry, like standing next to you. I wanted to order something. Well, good morning, everyone. We're going to continue in our study in the book of Galatians. We find ourselves in chapter 2. And uh, starting from verse 11, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. Galatians 2, uh, 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of God. Please be seated. I mean, there's just um, so much in this passage before us. Um, I'm only going to get to at least at the most verse 13. And uh, we're going to spend at least two, if not three sermons studying the truths that are in this text. And even this morning's sermon, it's going to be like two sermons in one. It's going to be a sermon on the text and then we're going to focus on fear of man and focus on that in the second part of the sermon. Well, I have that title for you in your bulletins, but you know some other titles for this message could have been uh, uh, when apostles collide, right? You know, these it's like the world's colliding here is uh, it's like a cage match. It's a heavyweight championship fight, and uh, here we see. Apostle Paul and Apostle Peter, you know, in church, probably right during communion meal, uh, duking it out before the whole other believers. So when apostles collide, or it could also be a ta- called a tale of two visits, a tale of two visits, because the previous passage, one through ten, was about Paul going down to Jerusalem. And having this private meeting with the pillars of the Jerusalem church. Now, this visit, it's about Peter going up to Antioch. Now, Antioch is about 300 miles directly north of Jerusalem. I did a Google Maps thing, and it's about here to uh, Fresno, here to Merced or Salinas area. So not too far away, directly north. And this is about Peter when he made his journey towards the city of Antioch. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire during this time. It was populated by almost a half a million people and over 10%, approximately 65,000 people in this city at this time were uh, Jewish people. And uh, there was a thriving Christian church there. And Paul was instrumental in uh, building up this church. Now, this we see God's sovereignty uh, with the church in Antioch because 
the church in Antioch was planted directly as a result of Paul's persecution of Christians in Jerusalem. All right, so Paul is in a way directly responsible for the church in Antioch because he is the one, the ringleader, who conspired to persecute Christians and murdered Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. In Acts 8, it tells us that after this persecution, apart from the apostles, many Christians scattered throughout the region to avoid persecution. And as they were fleeing persecution, they were proclaiming the gospel. And one of the first cities that they went to was 300 miles north in Antioch, and they proclaimed the gospel there. And as the gospel was preached, a church was planted. And this was... uh, This became the model for church planning uh, for over 2,000 years in church history. Persecution doesn't hinder the advance of the gospel. Opposition, suffering, sacrifice, trials uh, do not in any way uh, stop the advancement of the gospel. If anything, in God's sovereignty, persecution aids the gospel, right? Christianity thrives when Christians are persecuted. So much so, Tertullian said, mow us down, kill us, because the blood of Christians, the blood of martyrs, is the seed of a new church. So anytime you kill a single Christian, that Christian's blood becomes the beginnings of a whole new church. So... This church was thriving in Antioch, and uh, Antioch mostly was, was a, a metropolitan city. It was a very international city. It was right by the port, and there were a lot of Jews and Gentiles, of course, majority Gentiles, and it became the first international church. Um, the Jerusalem church, because it's in Jerusalem, was still a, a, a Jewish congregation. Now, by this time, when Antioch was planted, uh, Paul, uh, Peter had that vision in Acts 10 of the animals coming down from heaven. And Peter said, and I, will, I will not eat unclean animals. And God said, don't say what I've called clean, unclean. And through that vision, God led Peter to Cornelius, a Gentile uh, Roman officer. And a Gentile became a Christian. He received the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. So theologically, the Jerusalem church understood that the gospel was not just for the Jewish people. It was for everyone. It was for Gentiles. And as they would conclude later, that they did not need to be Jews to be full Christians. It was by grace through faith alone. So theologically, they knew this, but practically, they didn't live it out because in the Jerusalem church, a great majority of them were, were Jewish people. So even though they became Christians, they still practiced the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament because that was their culture. The church in Antioch was the first true international church. And this is where that theology became practice. And it became a place, the first place, Acts 10 tells us that the first place, they were called Christians, right? Little Christ was in the city of Antioch because uh, they were no longer identified as Jewish Christians, right? Christos is the Greek term for Messiah, and they identified themselves with, with a more Hellenistic understanding of, of Christianity, and they became more um, non-Jewish in their practices. And God used Antioch because of this as a launching point for our missionary activity throughout that region. So Antioch becomes the first real church planning church intentionally. Um, but because of this, because of this um, international Jew Gentile makeup, it became a flashpoint of controversy because they had to wrestle with uh, this truth that Gentiles are saved by grace alongside with Jews, but how does it flush out? in uh, ministry, flush out in reality, in life. And so one of the key events that happened was the c- collision between Peter and Paul, as Paul described it in Galatians 2. Now, there's so much to be said here about this, but one thing I want to highlight to you is uh, um, the ministry is messy. Right? Ministry, 
you know, controversy, conflict, disagreement, even collision within the church is, is normal, it's understandable, it's to be expected. Uh, and we see it here because we're dealing with such great truth of the gospel and we are such sinners and we have so many idols and we have so much cultural baggage, so many biases and prejudices. And we become a Christian, we bring all of that with us and then we become part of a community and all of these things are colliding with each other, right? And so for them, it was Jews and Gentiles. For us, it's a thousand and one things. So relationships in a church, it's not simple, linear, and it's not um, easy. It's challenging. It's difficult. It's complex. It's messy. And sometimes uh, there is conflict and controversy and collision involved. It is, it is like football. Football is not a contact sport. Right? Not the way we play a flag football, but real football, right? It's not a con- it's a collision sport. And so Christian ministry, church life, it's like and it's a it's a collision sport. And so this is an example of of, of what's what's to be accepted. How come they didn't uh, anticipate this? You know how come Paul and Peter didn't foresee this and, and mitigate and prevent and and help people? Well you can't. It's impossible. Right? You can't think 12 steps ahead and read what's going to happen in the life of a church because of truth and all these other issues. It happens. The key issue is we respond with grace, with the gospel, and we seek unity in Christ. And that's what we see with Paul and Peter. Great conflict, but resolved with great unity centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you go to Galatians 2, and um, it centers around Peter. And when he made that journey to uh, the church at Antioch, and it involves food. And I don't know about you. I'm, I'm, Peter's a lot like me. I've gotten into a lot of conflict, especially with my wife, over food, <laughs> over what I would not eat or what I would eat, what I eat too much of. And how I'm eating instead of listening and, you know, so many things. I'm thinking about food instead of thinking about others. Like, so Peter, I understand. So Peter gets in a lot of trouble because of food and eating. And, uh, and like, for them, eating was different. For them, eating, you know, we live in a very fast food culture. We eat, you know, convenience is an issue. We spend as little time as possible eating. And meals aren't time for just fellowship and relationship building and community and, and our identity. But for this uh, Middle Eastern culture, uh, eating together was very important. It was a very intimate thing. And um, my wife and I, years ago, a friend of ours took, a, took us to a Persian restaurant where they served pigeons. And uh, it was, uh, you know... It was not a very pleasant experience. I don't recommend that to anyone. If you're pretty, I, you know, I apologize. Sure, but it's for me, my, my personal. I got in trouble again because of food. Um, but one thing they, they did was we eat with their hands, and you, you sat around, you lay on a circular sofa, and so you lay down to your side, and that's what they would eat, and you would eat in that way, a very relaxed atmosphere, and you took your time, a meal would take two, three, four hours. And for the Jewish people, eating was, was like that. To have someone, if you were invited to a, a dinner at a, at a Jewish person's home, it was an act of great hospitality. And as an act of opening their hearts and their lives and their families to you, it was an invitation to close-knit fellowship. And because of their what, what they've been taught and their... They were, they were taught to avoid idolatry at all costs. And what made them unclean was even touching Gentiles. They avoided Gentiles, even in social settings, especially in any meal setting. If you were a Gentile, you would live your whole life never seeing the inside of a Jewish home. 
Right? It, would, it just never happened. Right? And so there was this uh, dynamic of eating and food that was really uh, germane to this, their religion and culture. And then that's why Christ came. And he's eating with tax collectors and even sinners. And even the Syrophoenician woman, right, she's eating the crumbs off of the table. He invites her and he touches, touches them. And this was a scandalous thing for the Pharisees because um, in their ceremonial understanding of the law, he was violating God's word. He was becoming unclean by doing this. What they didn't understand was uh, in Christ's eschatological kingdom, what Christ was preaching was that you were made clean not by obedience to the Old Testament law. You were made clean by a relationship with him, through faith in him. So by these sinners eating with Jesus, they were made clean, right? And these Pharisees were avoiding these unclean people by their act of disassociating themselves with Jesus and obeying the law made them unclean. Does that make sense? Right, so for, for us, how do we become clean? It's not by avoiding sin. It's by trusting in Jesus, by going to Christ, by abiding in him, by believing in him, by having a meal, eating Jesus. Right, he's the living bread. He's the spring of living water. And that's how we are made clean. That's how we are saved. And so they, they totally missed this dynamic of, um, of this Christ meal as a means of grace to all who partook of Christ in this way through faith. Now, that was the context in which uh, Jews and Gentiles were gathering together to eat. And uh, I am certain it took it took Jewish people a while to get accustomed to this because, I mean, they were reared from infancy of, of this um, poor uh, Gentiles and how they made them clean. They, they called Gentiles dogs. I mean, that's, that was one of the words they, labels they used to describe Gentiles. And I don't know if this is an appropriate analogy or not, but I think it's akin to... Uh, you know, people that, you know, you have pets, you have dogs, and you know, I, I used to be a dog owner when I was, in, when I was very young, but you know, I haven't owned a pet in a long time, so it's different now for me, but when you own a dog for a while, it becomes part of your family, right? You almost give the dog your last name, and uh, after a while, you don't consider it gross to, like, you know, even kiss the dog, Right? Have that dog like lick your face and lick your lips. I know it sounds, when I, but when I was a kid, I, I remember doing that. And then some families, they would have the dog eat in the main dining room table with the family. And I've read some families, they use the same bowl and dish, right, that human beings use, that the, the members of the family use, because they love that animal so much. Now, for those of you who are not into animals in that way, right, don't, are not, I don't have pets, don't have dogs. Not, but you go to a family and you saw that, you would be very, you know, be disturbing to you. And you look down at your plate and maybe yesterday they used this plate to feed that animal. Now I'm eating off of it today. You might have a real difficult time eating in that family. Well, a similar thing, I don't know how accurate analogy it is, but in an emotional sense, I think it's accurate. This is what was happening. Jewish people sitting down with Gentiles, and sharing a meal, this intimate setting, right? not just even knowing them or touching them, but just dining together uh, in, in, this, in this setting. Well, that was what was um, practiced at the church in Antioch. Right? That was what was practiced in the church in Antioch. Now, in the Jerusalem church, they, they knew by Peter's declaration in Acts 10. Um, let's turn to Acts 10. And um, you know, see this, uh, actually Acts 11, so Acts 10, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. You know, he, the Gentiles heard the good news, uh, Cornelius and his family. In 1044, the Holy Spirit 
fell on them. They were speaking in tongues as an evidence of them being received by the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 11, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard the Gentiles also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, here they are again, the Judaizers criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. All right, so they uh, you know, confronted Peter. How could you do this? And Peter began explaining to them in the order, verse 5, city of Joppa praying. This great sheet came down. And verse 7, a voice saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. By no means, Lord, nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Verse 9, the voice answered a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And then at this time, I went to a house in Caesarea, and uh, there were these Gentiles there, and God had visited them, and they became, they believed in the, in the cross. They believed in the gospel. And when verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So the Jerusalem church received this message from Peter, and they heard this testimony of Gentiles becoming Christians, and they agreed theologically. But when it was actually being practiced in the Antioch church, um, controversy erupted. Uh, go back to Galatians 2, and it involves Peter. So again, Peter goes up to Antioch, and it, it doesn't say, but it seems like he had been there for some time. Um, he had been eating with them, with uh, Jews and Gentiles together. Um, verse 12, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Eating, eating there is imperfect tense, so it, it has been continuing. It has been going on for some time. Peter had been eating with them. And most likely, it's the love feast, the Lord's table, the communion meal. He was eating with them. And he was eating what they were eating. He was eating shellfish. Right? He was eating um, pork. He was eating um, meat and milk together. He was eating like them, and he was eating with them because of what he had experienced in Acts 10. Cornelius and his family being saved, his vision from heaven. Therefore, he was practicing what he knew to be right. And then what happened? Um, certain men, um, Paul tells us, uh, verse 12, certain men came from James. Now, this is the circumcision party. These are the Judaizers from Jerusalem. And they came uh, with um, co-opting authority, name-dropping James, uh, and, have, and almost representing the apostle James or Jesus' half-brother James, uh, as they went to Antioch. We find out later in Acts 15, 24, that James says that these men came to trouble you, though we did not send them, right? So James clarifies, they, they, I did not send these men. They didn't go with our authority. They went on their own accord and what they were doing was not under our uh, authority. We were not affirming what they were doing, uh, adding circumcision and, and obeying the Sabbath to the gospel. They went on their own. Well, they went and they were shocked and they saw how Peter was freely fellowshipping with Gentile believers and how he was um, eating food that was forbidden in the Old Testament. Now, surprisingly, Peter, uh, four results of the Judaizers coming, four results. Uh, first two are, um, Peter started acting and walking crookedly, right? Acting and walking crookedly. It says in uh, verse 14 that they're acting uh, rest of the Jews acted hypocritically, verse 13, along with him, which is Peter. So Peter was uh, 
hypocritos. It's the Greek word for an actor in a play. In the Greek plays, the actors would actually put on a mask and they would play their role and they would call them hypocrites. It was not a derogatory term. It was just a word for an actor, but it, 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 it got that connotation of someone who was faking, going against their convictions, going against what they truly, who they truly were, what they truly believed. And so Paul was rebuking Peter for acting hypocritically, for going against his own convictions, his own faith, um, because these Judaizers, not only that, he was not walking in step with the gospel. Right? He was walking crookedly. The word there is orthopedian. Ortho is straight. So you go to orthodontist to straighten your teeth. You know, he straightens our teeth. And then pedeo is podiatry. We got a podiatrist in our church, right? What does he do? He works on feet. And so literally a straight feet, the metaphorical meaning is walking straight. And so from the gospel, there are these lines that go from the gospel. And we'll talk more about this in weeks to come. But the gospel is the hub. And from this hub, there are these lines of how we are to walk in light of the gospel. That's why so much the New Testament is talking about walking. Uh, I mean, your whole life, your whole orientation, you should be walking in, in worthy of the calling that we received in Christ. Right? Walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Walk in the line. Um, no longer walk as a Gentiles. Uh, walk properly as in daytime, Romans 13. Uh, Paul, Paul was saying Peter was not walking straight. He was walking crooked. You get pulled over by the police. And they, I'm sure they still do this. They have you. They want to check if you're uh, inebriated or not, and they make you walk in a straight line. And Peter, instead of walking the line of the gospel, he was uh, swaying all over the place. That was the two, first two results. Third result is verse 11. He stood condemned. Right? He stood guilty. And this is Paul's declaration. Paul knew what the gospel stated, and what the church declared. And Peter stood to condemn because he was going against what he testified himself. What he declared before the leaders of Jerusalem. And so when we go out of step of the gospel as Christians, we condemn ourselves. We pronounce ourselves guilty. Right? So if we boast of things in our lives, we're condemning ourselves because the gospel that we believe and preach tells us that we're sinners saved by grace. There's nothing to boast in. Right, we'll talk about this more next time. But if we harbor racism in our hearts, judging people by their ethnicity, judging people by their social class, or education, or income, then we are condemning ourselves at that moment because it goes against the gospel that we are proclaiming. As any time... We violate the gospel. We're condemning ourselves. Right? And so Peter, he condemned him. He stood condemned, right? guilty uh, by what he was doing. And then fourthly, it, you know, false teaching spreads. It's like gangrene. It's like little yeast. Works itself with the whole dough. False teaching spreads where rest of the Jewish believers started to draw back from the Gentiles and would not eat with them. And even, it says, Paul says here, even Barnabas was led astray by this hypocrisy. Now Barnabas, he's a son of encouragement. He was a godly man. He was the one who stuck, he was not a coward. He was not a people pleaser. He was the one who stuck his neck out and trusted Paul that his conversion was genuine. Nobody would believe him. Nobody would reach out to Paul. They thought it was a ruse to, to bring out Christians, to, to persecute them. 
Barnabas was the one who took Paul's hand and gave it to the apostles and verified uh, Paul's true, uh, true faith. Barnabas was the one in Acts 10 and 11 that the leaders of Jerusalem sent to Antioch. They, were, they heard that, you know, those Christians that left because of persecution? Well, we're hearing from them that Gentiles in Antioch became Christians and they're establishing a church. We need to send someone, a godly man, a leader who established this church. Who should we send? And they sent Barnabas. And Barnabas, when he went to Antioch, he saw what was going. He said, you know what? I need help here. And Tarsus was only 20 miles away. He went to Tarsus and who did he get? He got Paul. And he said, Paul, come with me to minister to these Gentile, Gentile Christians and let's work there. So Paul and Barnabas ministered according to the book of Acts for a whole year in the city of Antioch. So the, both of them loved these people. Both of them had stood in the gospel together. And yet when Peter defected away from the gospel and the Jewish Christians followed him, even Barnabas was led astray to hypocrisy and walking crookedly. Right. So this was... Uh, a major potential disaster in the first missionary church in the New Testament. A first international church, first major battle, the gospel was at stake practically and it could have greatly hindered the uh, advance of the gospel. Um, and so Paul knew it was at stake. Paul was uh, fighting for his life. Paul was fighting for his church. Paul was fighting for the gospel. Hence, this public rebuke, uh, public confrontation of Peter. And we'll get to that in our next study. But for the remainder of our time, this is the second sermon. I, I told you you're going to have two sermons. That's the first sermon. The second sermon is, what, what's happening here? Peter, How, why? What's the reason behind this... Uh, this profound compromise, this profound error and, and defection on Peter's part. And uh, verse 12 tells us, I was, um, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. He was afraid of the Judaizers. Now, he wasn't afraid that they were going to persecute him. They're Christians or the professing Christians. He wasn't afraid they were going to martyr him. He wasn't afraid that they were going to, I don't know, take his badge away from him, right? You're not an apostle anymore. No, Peter, his name is in the Bible. His name is in the Gospels. These Judaizers, their names are not in the Gospels. Peter was the lead apostle. Peter was, his profession in Matthew 16 was the basis of Christ declaring the church and establishing the church. So Peter was the chief spokesperson of the apostles. He was the one in authority, not these Judaizers. Now, why was he afraid of them? We, you know, it's beyond explanation. We don't, we don't have the explanation here in the text. And uh, this is why our hearts are so um, are just complex and mysterious to each of us. We all have the fear of man and we, can, we can't understand it. We can't see it because it's so unique to each of us because of our, our flesh, our, our sinfulness, our experiences, our background, our idols, things we cherish and value. It's unique to each of us and we can't see it in each other or it's very hard to see it because it's so hidden in our hearts. For Peter, this was uh, so significant that he uh, acted hypocritically and walked crooked. Now, if I were to, if I was a guessing man, I would I would say some of it had to do with uh, the pressures of leadership, being a spiritual leader, and uh, everyone is insecure. Being a leadership magnifies and increases that insecurity. Uh, if you think uh, you know leading doesn't inse- increase insecurity, you know ask a Where's Ben Liao this morning? Is he in class right now? Ask Ben. After he led praise, he was like, oh, man, I was so nervous. He could, you know, he was about to, like, you know, start crying or something. Because 
Right? It's a hard thing to stand in front of people and lead praise. Right? It's much, you're in a much more secure place listening to Ben saying, nah, I can't sing. <laughs> no, <laughs> not very good. Right? It's a much harder thing. So, you know, like marriage increases insecurity. Right? Children increases insecurity. Leadership increases in- and spiritual leadership above all because ministry is one, one thing in life where you can never master it. Right? You feel wholly inadequate, completely unworthy. You feel like someone ought to be ministering, not me. If you don't feel that, you're an egomaniac. You, know, you got some cr- crazy narcissistic going, thing going on in your heart. Like everyone, you know, if you play, if you're good at a sport, you don't feel that way, right? If you're good at you know, like Jason, he's a PhD in math. When he goes to math class, he feels secure, right? <laughs> he feels confident, right? But ministry is completely different, spiritual ministry, because we are sinners saved by grace, trying to minister the gospel to, to sinful people. And uh, that's got to be one dynamic that's, that's, that's there. And another thing is... Uh, you know, Peter was an uneducated guy. He was a fisherman, right? I mean, talk about blue collar. All he did was throw a net, catch fish, and sell that fish. That was his livelihood. So I got to think he wasn't a very good student. I got to think he fell asleep in the synagogue, right? He went to those classes, and he didn't take notes, and he fell asleep and didn't like it. Why do I care? Right? Why do I care about this books? I'm going to I'm going to do what my dad did, catch fish and eat fish and sell fish, right? And then he becomes a Christian leader by grace, and he's surrounded by these Judaizers who are like A++++, those, those students, right? And some of you guys, like, you guys aren't content with 4.0. You got to get like 5.0. <laughs> and they got 5.0 in their, you know, G- University of Judaism, where <laughs> under Gamaliel, they're, they're, they're memorizing not just the Torah, but the Talmud, the commentary on the Torah, right? They memorized the footnotes. And these guys knew the Bible and knew teachers left and right. And they were just like flaunting it. They, were, they weren't meek about it. They weren't humble. And so Peter is there. He's an apostle, but he can't memorize, you know, Deuteronomy 6.4. And these guys are just talking like left and right. And I'm sure he felt so intimidated. It's so unworthy because all he did was deny Jesus three times, right? And these guys, right, were like spiritual giants, like discipline, knew knew the Bible. And so all of that, I think, caused him to esteem the Judaizers so much that when push comes to shove, though he believed the gospel in his acting and in his walking, in his conduct, he was a hypocrite, and in his walking, it was crooked. Now, Paul wasn't uh, intimidated by these Judaizers. He had other, other issues, but for Paul, you know, he played that game before. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a student under the top teacher of Israel, Gamaliel. So when they got 5.0, Paul got 6.0, right? <laughs> Paul, Paul, Paul knew all those guys. He's like, I, I, I outschooled you guys in class. So Paul had no intimidation with these Judaizers. He knew their preaching power, but lack that a form of godliness but lacking power right they were empty they're they're bankrupt they're no they no true spirituality so paul was intimidated by them and so paul stood firm and um corrected peter now this is an issue a major issue where the most insidious result of fear of man is um you deny christ you deny the gospel now, for us, you know, probably not like theologically, we're not going to deny the gospel, but practically, right, functionally, day in and day out, we, we shouldn't judge Peter because this is us. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, and if gospel grace has given you self awareness, now, it is a shocking thing in ministry how we meet people who are so totally honest. Lacking self-awareness, right? They're just blind. It's crazy how people are blind to their true self, right? And we realize self-awareness, especially spiritual self-awareness, just general, is a gift of God. 
It's a, it's a work of the gospel. It's grace. If you have any modicum of self-awareness, you would say that you are, you, know, you, you, you practically deny Christ. You reject the gospel. You don't believe it because of this very sinful issue in our hearts, which is the fear of man. All of us uh, have this. Now, it is a biblical terminolo- term. And what is fear meant? It means being controlled by people. It means being mastered by, it means worshiping people, trusting people, needing people rather than Christ. It's hoping in people rather than God. Right? Fear is used broadly. It's not phobos. It's not being afraid of people. But fear in a broad sense where you're intimidated, you trust, you hope, you want to please people rather than, rather than Christ. And man is broad as well. It could be a man, it could be a woman, or it could be a child. Right? You want a child's approval more than Christ. You want your spouse's approval more than Christ. You want your boss's approval more than Christ. It is, in a sense, uh, replacing God with people. Proverbs 29, 25, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Our hearts are idol-making factories. It's an idol-making factory, and our premier idol is people, which we use to worship ourselves. Ed Welch said, what is the result of this people idolatry? As in all idolatry, the idol we choose to worship soon owns us. The object we fear overcomes us. Although insignificant in itself, the idol becomes huge and it rules us. It tells us how to think, how to feel, how to act. It tells us what to wear. It tells us to laugh at dirty jokes. It tells us not to proclaim the gospel. The whole strategy backfires. We never expect that using people to meet our desires leaves us, in fact, enslaved to them. And and all of us, this fear of man. We just fear different people. Now, people ask me, James, do you have the fear of man? Oh, you, you bet I do. Uh, you bet I do. I, I have some time, right? Uh, a few, <laughs> you know, how much time do we have? A few years ago, uh, one of the, you know, uh, I realized this is why I get so nervous when we have guest speakers, right? We used to have professors come from TMS. We still will, you know, but we used to have them come and speak. And I hated those Sundays, right? I, and I would preside and I'll come up here and I, I wouldn't make any sense, right? You guys, some of you guys remember, right? And it's because I respected these men so much that I was afraid they would come and they would see our church and they would say, James, you failed. Or you made mistakes here. Or they'll see right through and say, James, like, you're doing it all wrong, right? And so that's why I was so nervous to have these uh, um, guest speakers from the seminary come and speak at our church. You know, another time, you know, Marcus and I went to a Desiring God conference uh, Pastor John Piper's conference uh, years ago, and we we found we went, we went to his church Sunday night uh, before the conference, and we found out that he had a prayer meeting before his service where anyone can come and pray with him. So we thought, you know, John Piper is gonna pray. Man, we'd love to pray with him. Let's go. We went there. We we're expecting like hundreds of people, and we'd be like, you know, just a worship setting. He's gonna pray, but we gather. There's a small room, about ten chairs, and five people show up. Right. So we're sitting there, and John Piper walks in, and he sits right next to me. Right? And like four other people, said, let's pray. And I'm like, man, I want to pray. Here, you pray for me, not pray with you. So I'm the first one. Let's go around and pray. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm like, what am I going to say? I'm going to start praying like, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, the Bible... I'm like, James, I started mumbling prayer, and Marcus does a great job praying. I'm like, all bitter. Like, <laughs> that was what I was going to say right there. And some other guys, they don't do a good job either. And then Piper prays. So we end, we shake his hand, we take a picture with him. And we're like, what happened? Right? And then, like, as soon as he leaves the room, Marcus says, James, remember we read that note? He was diagnosed with cancer a few weeks ago, right? And so we had this opportunity to pray for Piper, who has an upcoming surgery, 
And because we were so afraid of him, we didn't love him. That's what fear of man does, right? One of the worst things of fearing man is the person you fear, you don't love that person, right? You can't love people. You're not loving people. You're using people for yourself. And here we are with Pastor Piper. We could have loved him as a brother in Christ, but instead, because of our fear of man, instead of serving him, we, we uh, missed that opportunity. So it's, you know, I wrestle with it, and everyone wrestles with it. If you wrestle with it, you are not alone. Ed Walsh said in his book, when people are big and God is small, fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check our pulses if someone, or check for pulse if someone denies it. So only one who does not fear a man is someone who's, who's dead, who's passed away. So fear of man is it's, it's an insidious cycle. Fear of man causes legalism. Legalism causes insecurity. Insecurity causes fear of man. It's this like crazy loop, crazy cycle, downward spiral where there is um, no end. I, I've got this um, testimony by a, by a, by a wife talking about the cycle. Let me just read it to you. Um, She wrote, I think a main problem we had was a performance mentality. We had very specific rules about what a husband should do and what a wife should do. And if my husband didn't live up to the standard, there was very little mercy from me. This worked both ways. We were constantly judging one another because of our failures. I suppose this came from the subtle understanding that the main purpose of being in relationship with God was to have sin revealed so we could work harder. Just as this damages, um, just as this damages intimacy with God, it damaged our intimacy with one another, where we saw our primary role as one of accountability in confronting sin. My performance as a child of God was constantly falling short, and so was my performance as a wife. I often said things like this, it would be better for you if I died, so you could marry a godlier wife for your children, and and mother for your children. My husband spent his fair share of time despairing of ever being a godly husband and a father. I think it's obvious that in an environment like this, love is not going to grow. Love becomes almost irrelevant. Another issue connected to this performance mindset is fear of man. With fear of man coming into play, our failures became even heavier burdens. Not only were we concerned with how we failed, but we were concerned with how it would look to others. We were also constantly thinking we would be pulled from ministry because of our failures to perform. We often critiqued each other after spending time with people whose opinions matter to us. We piled on more guilt and fear. Again, not very loving. So this is um, uh, alive and well in all of us, this fear of man. Some uh, quick symptoms, just to kind of drive it home home a little more, uh, to see uh, fear of man in your heart. Do you see yourself... uh, Easily pressured by people, right? Given to peer, peer pressure is a euphemism for fear of man. Are you overcommitted? You can't say no to people, right? Do you uh, shower people with inappropriate gifts? Right? Do you seek to buy friendships with flattery or gifts? Do you need things from people? You need something from your spouse. Right? You need favor, acceptance, approval from your leaders, your parents. You need respect from others. Do you show favoritism? Does your life revolve around what others think of you? Are you constantly thinking about what that person thinks of you or thought of you? Or are you constantly playing back things that you said or you did in your mind and afraid, did I say something wrong? Did I make a mistake? Do you uh, use people to stroke your ego, to fill you up? Do you ever fear being exposed as an imposter? Are you afraid to give a straight answer, to say what you believe, what you feel? Do you get easily embarrassed? Do you tell lies, even white lies, to make you look better in front of others? Our Christian version is, do you, do you, uh, uh, are you afraid to preach the gospel because of what, how, what people might think of you? Would you, do, you op- do you not obey Christ because of people's opinions? 
Do you uh, refuse to serve or minister in the church because of fear of man? You refuse to exercise your spiritual gifts because you fear people. Do you isolate yourself in fellowship? Right? You hide yourself. You, you don't want to be vulnerable. You don't want to, be, you don't want to share uh, your sins and confess your sins out of fear of man. Right? Or do you, the opposite, opposite, opposite behavior, but the same sin is, are you, so, um, are you so filled with fear of man that you react to this by despising people, looking down on everyone, thinking people that they're, thinking of people as trash, I don't care what they think of me. Their opinions do not matter at, at, at all whatsoever. Right? So you, same, same sin issue, but how it comes out in your life is you validate yourself. You're like, you're like those people who try out for American Idol and everybody tells them, like their parents tell them, the whole United States of America tells them they can't sing and they say, no, you're all wrong. You guys don't know what you're talking about. You guys are all foolish. You guys have no talent. I'm the only one who understands what true singing is and I'm right, you're wrong. And, you, and they, like, they demean people and validate themselves that's still fear of man. Right? That's, a, that's a reaction, a response from the source, which is fear of man. Right? Bible tells us that you know, our favorite idol is not some statue uh, in a temple, but people are our idol of choice. Right? People are our idol of choice. And this is where you and I don't get the gospel. This is where, this is why we preach the gospel to Christians. This is why the gospel is so important. You get someone who fears man and you tell him, stop fearing man. That person will be like, yeah, I'm afraid of you, so I'm going to try my spell to stop. Right? <laughs> man, you scared me right now. I want to I earn your respect. I want to show you I'm going to be a good Christian. I'm going to stop fearing man. And you just implant the fear of man in a greater measure in that person's heart. It is impossible to deal with heart issues with the law. It only exposes sin. It has no power to transform. That's why the gospel is so necessary. That's why we never graduate from the gospel. We never outgrow our need for the gospel. Keller says gospel is not just ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z. It is the Christian life. What we need the most is to hammer the gospel in our heads and in our hearts so that in the inner man, Christ will reign and not ourselves and not people. This is why we preach the gospel and this is why you should clamor for the gospel. And this is why your best attention during the sermon should be given towards the gospel portion. It should, be, it should all be the gospel, but especially when the gospel is preached, that's when our hearts should fix our hearts on it because that is what we need to, to have ourselves be liberated from this snare. Right. John Calvin said, we are all partly unbelievers throughout our lives. Right. Throughout our lives, we're all, in some areas, some part of our lives, we are unbelievers. We're just like non-Christians. Unbelief, the sin that so entangles us, Hebrews 12 reigns. And in that area, the gospel, we need to believe the gospel. So that we wouldn't act hypocritically and we wouldn't walk crookedly. So a few closing thoughts um, for our time, close our time. Um, First of all, the more you grow in life, the more you're in danger of legalism and fear of man. I meant to say fear of man. So Younger you are, you have, you have, you're, you're safer. You're, it's, it's, but more, more you have more responsibilities you have, right? more you grow as a Christian, more you serve in the church, more you lead, you have a greater, greater fear of man, insecurity. You have a greater need for the gospel. Right? So understand that. Like, Maturing as a Christian doesn't mean like you struggle with fear of man less. Right? Growing as a Christian means you're going to struggle with fear of man all the more, so you, need, you have a greater need for, for Christ. 
Secondly, um, in our church and in your life, practically we want Christ to be the center. Right? And that's why we want to have the pulpit and, and every ministry be gospel-centered, radically preaching Christ. Because if Christ is not preached, something or someone else is preached. And something or someone else becomes a center. And it's, uh, it's devastating. So in a small group, you gather together around the gospel, around the message of Christ, around the word of God, then it flourishes. But if a small group is centered around a person, a personality or a leader, that person becomes your functional savior. And you, would, you will seek to uh, please that person, gain that person's respect or approval, acceptance. You want to impress that person or that leader rather than Christ. And when that happens, then it's that crazy cycle, that crazy loop. So whether it's uh, children's ministry or care groups or equipping hour or the pulpit, it, it, you know, it can't be like James Shan, right? It's got to be Christ. We're all just worshiping Christ together because he is our Savior, not any man. And then finally, uh, let's close with this. The gospel, again, is the cure, right? Gospel is the, is the only cure. Ed Vault said this in his book, when people are big, God is small. All experiences of the fear of man share at least one common pe- feature. People are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. Since there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. Therefore, the first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious and not people. And that's how you drive out the fear of man, by being consumed by this awesome and glorious God. And how can we experience, how can we see and know and believe where do we go to know and believe this glorious and awesome God? Is it by looking out at the stars, looking at the Grand Canyon, or looking at you know uh, science, or looking at God's creation? No, to see God in all His glory, we look to Jesus Christ. We look to the cross. We look to the gospel. Hebrews 1:3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, except the only God who's at the Father's side, Jesus Christ, who has made him known. In John 14, Philip said to Jesus, will you show us the Father? And Jesus said, show you the Father. Anyone who sees me has seen the Father. How do we have this glorious God huge in our hearts, right? will drive away our fear of man is by apprehending the gospel of Christ, understanding it and believing it in every area of our lives. And then God becomes big to us. And the fruit of that is that our fear of man is driven away. Oh, what a joy it is to call you father. There was a time we couldn't call you that. It would be uh, wholly inappropriate. It would be wrong. It would be offensive to you. How dare we call you father? But now we, we call you father because you have called us sons. You've adopted us into your family. And Lord, that is my joy this morning for I am an under-shepherd. I am not the chief shepherd. And I am not the Savior of this church, you are. Lord, we look to you to save us from our idolatry. Save us, deliver us. Lord, free us from the snare of fear of man. And Lord, I am not able to articulate the gospel in a manner that would, would, would help us to do this. So we ask, we, because of my weakness, we depend on the Holy Spirit. 
We depend upon your promises and we trust you to do it. And Lord, we ask and I plea, I beg you, God, would you make Christ glorious in our sight? Lord, humble us, break our stubborn pride. Lord, open our eyes to see Jesus risen and victorious and glorious through, your, through, his, through the cross and help us, Lord, believe in spite of our unbelief. And Lord, may you help us understand and get the gospel hammered into our hearts and Lord, and understand our need for it continually that we never outgrow in the need of it. And Lord, as we experience this liberty from the gospel, Lord, you would set us free not to indulge the flesh, not to live for ourselves again, but it would set us free to love you all the more and instead of fearing one another, to love one another from the heart as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.